Welcome to the Lights Out Podcast. This is Chris Lights Out Lytle, and this is our journey to document the history of mixed martial arts. I've brought with me my friend, the MMA detective Mike Davis, and together we will preserve the history and hear some great stories from the world in the era of the no holds barred. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome back to the Lights Out MMA History Podcast. I am Joey Venti. With me, as always, is the host of the show, the MMA detective Mike Davis. If you're a member of our audience, you probably remember the first time you heard the names Ken Shamrock or Hoist Gracie, and today's guest was probably the one saying those names. He was the original voice of the Octagon, the UFC's first ever ring announcer. He is the one and only Rich G-Man Goins. How you doing, sir? What's up, fellas? Thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited. Rich, um, in order to get you here... We had to pay a pirate ab subscription in order to get your phone number. <laughs> you know what? I, it's so funny because, well, this, I, this is the golf club that I, I now work at, Bear Creek Golf Club. I've been a member there 23 years. I, I actually sell memberships. I do a little radio on the side now, so I'm pretty much retired from radio. But my number is right on their website. You could have found me anywhere if you want to buy a golf membership. Oh, <laughs> fair enough. Here, let's. I want to... Would you mind like talking about what you're doing right now, and then Joey and I will get ours out of the way as well? Yeah, you know, when I did the the original UFCs, um, I was working on a morning show called Lewis and Floorwax in Denver. Real popular FM morning show, classic rock station. I was a sports guy. And um, anyway, so I did that for 20 years, and then I did some sports talk radio for four or five years, and then I did... I was like a, a nighttime jock on another classic rock station. Uh, they let me go like a year ago. But in the interim, I was still a member at this club, Bear Creek Golf Club. And uh, and then I became the membership director. They just didn't have a membership director. So pretty much, guys, everybody wants my job is what they tell me. But I get to play golf every day and get paid for it. So I'm not a professional golfer. I'm not that good. But I, I still make a decent living selling golf memberships. That's good stuff. Good stuff. All right. This interview, Anthony or Anthony Schurz, man, really helped us out piecing this thing together. Um, if you guys go to mixedmartialarts.com and go to the Underground Forum, Hong Kong Foo, he's always pinning our stuff. If you want to see our show notes, I post them over there. And we're also looking for somebody to help with timestamps. Joey, before we get this thing going. Oh, if you're in the Los Angeles area, uh, South Woodier, Tillis, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, from uh, kids programs all the way up to uh, starting an MMA career, go check them out. Tillis BJJ. That's all right, so, Rich, I think we're, we're we're owed to UFC one. How did you land a gig? I mean, that's the easiest low-hanging fruit question there is. It, it was really interesting. I mean, it, it, it's uh, it's such a great story because nobody knew what UFC was. Nobody. I mean. There were martial arts people, like legendary martial arts people, that didn't know what the UFC was. Well, there's a guy named Barry Fay and a guy named Zane Bresloff. Uh, we called him Insane Zane Bresloff. Uh, they're both passed away. But they were huge marketing, marketing guys. If you know anything, Barry Fay was the number one concert promoter in the country. He owned Fayline. He brought in like U2 to Red Rocks, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles. You name it. They all came to Denver because of Barry Fay. His partner in a lot of promotions was Zane Bresloff. And Zane 
uh, was the guy behind the uh, World Wrestling Federation. He owned the World Wrestling Federation. So all the big, giant stadium WrestleManias, Zane was behind that. And they were friends of mine. I mean, I knew them from being in the radio business and had emceed some of their events. Anyway, Zane calls me up and says, hey, man, uh, there's some guys that are putting on this martial arts thing at McNichols Arena. They need an announcer, a ring announcer. They want to hire Lewis and Floorwax, my morning guys. So this Michael Pilot calls me. He was the production manager and said, hey, we want, you know, we want to get some radio promotion. So the best way is to hire your guys to do uh, the ring announcing. Anyway, so. Uh, he goes, how much do they charge? I said, I don't know. Let me ask him. And so they said, you know, they wanted like 1500 bucks a piece or something. Called Pilot back and he said, nah, man, we, we don't have the budget for that. You know anybody that does ring announcing? I go, I do. <laughs> so he's like, well, tell me about your experience. I said, well, man, I, I used to do the core super fights here in Denver. Uh, there was a lady named Karen Turner. She was a big martial arts uh, person. She she had she had her own dojo. She had, you know, a lot of connections in the mixed martial arts world. So anyway, she had hired me. I've been doing that for two years. One of the guys that came out of that was Patrick Smith. Okay, wow. so I had seen Patrick Smith many times in the ring before he ever did the UFC. So anyway, I called Pilot back and he's like, well, what do you charge me? And I told him my number. He's like, you're hired. He goes, you got any film or, t you know, I go, no, man. I said, I'll just show up and do it. So that's how I got the gig originally. I knew nothing about Semaphore. I knew nothing about UFC. None of that. All right. Did you go to the Sabaki Challenge? I know Pat yes. Smith, and what, you mm -hmm. did, you attended it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had we had a lot of the Sabaki guys on. Um, Man, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, the guy that ran it. Shihan Anania or whatever. Uh, he was a really great martial arts guy. And he would come down to the studio and promote the Sabaki Challenge whenever they came to Denver. So, you know, people knew about Sabaki Challenge. They just didn't know anything about the UFC. All right. How many people would be in attendance at the Sabaki Challenge? Roughly, from your head. Uh, man. You know, they did it at smaller venues. Um, like I remember one was being one was at the Denver Coliseum and one was um, at Mammoth Gardens where UFC two was, uh, you know, maybe a thousand. They weren't okay. huge, but but they made money because when you look at it on video, it looks like pandemonium at those things. It just looked packed. And well, they pack we them in, you know, when they they figure out how many people are coming to the arena just like they did at the old McNichols arena. I mean, the first UFC had maybe seven, 8,000 people and it, and it was built for 20,000. So the people that bought the tickets in the upper levels, they just moved them all down. They, they wanted that thing on pay-per-view to look like it was a madhouse when actually the, the whole upper level of McNichols arena and probably the club level were empty. They just filled the lower level, which is about 8,000 people. And that's what it looks like on, on the video. Okay, because it's uh, when we interviewed Art Davey, he said one of the main reasons they chose Denver was because the Sabaki Challenge had no gloves. It was bare-fisted, and because of that, it allowed them to go there without uh, really too much concern. All right, so you get to UFC 1. Well, let, let, me, let me make a point there. Sure. The, the other thing, guys, was that the, 
Denver, the state of Colorado, didn't have a boxing commission. Okay. <laughs> One of the few states in the country that didn't have a boxing commission. So Art was right. You could do bare knuckle. Uh, but the other side of that was if, if there was a boxing commission involved, they wouldn't allow bare knuckle. And, and Colorado was the only state or one of the few that didn't have bare knuckle or, you know, didn't have a boxing commission. So they were able to hold that event here without having to go through any of the, you know, red tape to, to get it done. I, I would say probably biggest city with no commission. Oh, because... ab oh absolutely. Like 100 percent. I mean, Denver is probably. At that time, back in the early 90s, maybe top 10 or 12 as far as population in the country. You know, everybody else that didn't have a boxing commission, were, you know, some of the smaller states were 30 through 40 or 50, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're talking like Cody, Wyoming. Yeah, yeah, yeah stuff like exactly. That. All right, so you get to UFC 1. When do you get to the hotel and kind of see what's going on and like your, your, your brain starts going, man, what is this thing? Oh, so um, I went down. I forgot where they were staying. It's it's not even a hotel now. It's like condos, but it was like a Regency Plaza or something. But so Michael wanted me, Michael Pilot wanted me to meet all the fighters uh, that they had in place. And they gave each of the fighters, um, they had this giant ballroom that was divided into sections. So each guy got a training section um, for to train pre-fight. So this is probably on a, I don't know, Wednesday. I went down to the hotel. I never met Michael Pilot. I, you know, met him. I met some of the other uh, people that were with Semaphore. So I go down there and he walks me around. And so I spent probably 10 or 15 minutes in each of the training rooms, um, when you look at all the fighters that were in the UFC one, I got to go in there. I was the only person besides the semaphore people that had access to the training rooms. So when you run down the list, I got to watch, you know, I stayed in Gracie's room probably a half an hour um, okay. because okay, I wanted so, to watch. Them. Okay. So in essence, we've had a couple interviews that we, we dropped this month. And Zane Frazier and Arch Emerson in particular, they had said that the Gracies were following them and videotaping. Did you see any of that? Um, Carlos Valente. I mean, as far as as watching or or videotaping their their uh, martial arts styles and their training, their, yeah, their workouts. Opponents. That I don't remember honestly. <laughs> you know, the one of the things that so. Early on in my life, I had done some Muay Thai, and that's kind of how I got, a, you know, you know, did, uh, got involved in martial arts and had a had a bug for it, and then did the uh, core super fights. Um, so I wanted to watch different styles. I wasn't really, you know, other than what you see on TV, I didn't see a whole lot of, you know, different styles in person. So when they told me about Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. I, I was like, what's this all about? I wanted to watch uh, Hoist train. And it, it was amazing. They just kept throwing guys at him. Like he would he would get in the, and they had kind of a, a mat set up, so it wasn't really the octagon, but um, they would just keep throwing a guy at He'd get super tired, and then another guy would jump in. And then he would, 
you know, mix it up with that guy. And then another, you know, sparring partner would jump in and he'd mix it up with that guy. So I got to see every single person in the UFC uh, spar before the actual UFC. And were any of the Gracie family members there? Or, oh, yeah. Or oh, yeah. Horian was there. Watching um, the other fighters. Oh, no. I, I don't remember Horian in, in the other rooms watching the other fighters. I don't remember. That's fair. That, I, that I don't remember. Horian was I, in, I mean, he was in uh, Hoyce's uh, room, like, all the time. It, it, did anybody stand out? Or did you say anybody that, man, this person does not belong here? Or somebody that was like, man, that person might be in the finals when you watched him working out? Uh, yeah. Who was the uh, sumo wrestler? Um, Tuli. Tuli. Yeah, Tuli was the one guy, knowing martial arts, that I thought was going to get crushed. Um, Wasn't he All the other guys... Huh? It was huge. It didn't matter. You, you know, you know that uh, martial arts is all, obviously it's leverage, but it's also you. You got to be quick on your feet. You got to be able to strike. I, I thought if he came close to anybody who had striking skills, he was going to get laid out like within ten seconds. If he didn't get the guy down and didn't get him on his back. There's no way he had a chance on his feet to go toe to toe with uh, a, an experienced black belt in whatever discipline you want to throw at the guy. I knew he was going to get his ass kicked, honestly. You know. Wow. And all I wow. did was when I watched him, I only watched him for maybe ten or fifteen minutes, but most of his stuff was pitted against other wrestlers. He had, they had wrestlers going against him in his training sessions, and I was like man, why wouldn't you bring in a black belt in karate or bring in a Muay Thai guy or, you know, some other discipline to get this guy the feel for what's exactly going to happen? And that's somebody's going to stand back and do a, you know, 360 leg kick and whip him across the head and he's out. All right. And that's so what happened. Low, on the low end, who was on the high end? Um, Shamrock, Gracie. I mean, those you could tell that those guys – um uh my they're serious. Yeah, they were serious. Uh, oh, Did yeah, they, they were definitely serious. Um Did Gerdeau make an impression on you? Who did? Uh, Gerard Gerdeau. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna mention him. Yeah, because he was big. He was really, you know, for uh, for when you look at most of the guys physically, they were slighter, smaller, like in stature as far as their height. Shamrock was ripped. I mean, you could tell that guy had done a lot of training, both in the weight room, you know, wrestling, being a shoot fighter. Uh, Gordeaux was just lanky. And when I watched him work out, I was like, man, this guy is seriously talented. He had striking ability. He was quick on his feet. He was strong. Um, there was, I mean, that guy, th those were the top three. Like, okay, if somebody's going to get into the finals, it's two out of these three guys. Was Gordo smoking in between training sessions? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he was funny. <laughs> it's funny you bring that up because I used to think, you know, I used to watch you know, a lot of Major League Baseball and then you guys would be in the bullpen, sitting in the dugout, you know, dragging on a cigarette or whatever. And, yeah, 
he he was definitely after he, he did his you know five or six minutes he'd go over in the chair and light one up and then he'd jump back in so but you know obviously you know to each his own i don't i don't uh i don't judge that no no hey uh we uh he he said he was smoking during a rules meeting. Everything he didn't care. Um, no, he he had that attitude like I don't give a shit. You know, like nothing bothered that guy, and he he didn't take anything. He didn't take shit from anybody. You could tell that that was a guy that did whatever he wanted in life, and probably still does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting backstory. He's I think he's in the mountains of Portugal right now, and Joey took us about two years to find him. So wow. Well, you know, hey, there's a lot. There's a lot of guys that have gone down the other road, man. A lot of guys in prison, and a lot of guys that didn't make it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's definitely a uh, when you look at the the mentality of MMA guys, man. It it's a tough life. It it really is a tough life. I mean, you don't get guys like Conor McGregor and people like that that are making millions of dollars. I mean, it's usually bar fighters and guys that are just trying to scratch out a living um, yeah. you know, yeah. doing martial arts. Yeah. All right. So the pre-fight rules meeting, uh, what do you remember about it? Uh, it was mostly, um, you know, no eye gouging, no nut crushing, um, you know, no pads, um, you know, if a guy was down, you couldn't, you know, technically you couldn't jump on him and really hammer the shit out of him, but that happened a few times as well to make sure the guy was knocked out. But it was mostly just, hey, you know, try and keep it clean, no eye gouging and no, you know, ball striking, so to speak. Uh, that's the one thing I remember about that. It, was, it wasn't it was a long meeting. It was all about, hey, you guys are going in there. This is the first of its kind. You know, you're professionals, act like professionals. And, uh, you know, try and keep it clean as best you can. Do you remember Horion subtracting things from people like you can't wear shoes, you can't wear gloves, you can't wrap your hands? Do you remember any of that going down? Yeah. I, I, Horion was, you know, one of the things about Horion was that I that, that I took away from the original meeting. And I, I remember thinking this was he wants every advantage for for hoist right but you know i mean hoist still wore the the jacket you know he still wore his gi yeah what's that his gi yeah he he still wore his gi and 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 that was the one thing i was like i don't think that's fair because i think he has an advantage because if guys try and grasp him he's going to be able to pull away because he never tied that thing it was always loose and whenever somebody tried to grab onto him, he was able to pull away. I'm not saying that he skirted the rules, but if other guys can't have tape, if other guys can't have hand wraps, if other guys can't wrap their feet, that kind of thing, you know, he's wearing his gi, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess he's going to get away with it. Yeah, people are going to grab his gi rather than his body. Yeah, Right, exactly. And it's tough to keep a, a guy in the grasp when he's got that on because he was pulling away a lot. There were a few guys that got him down, but – they they just couldn't keep him down. What about Zane Frazier? Man, I don't remember a lot about Zane. Honestly. That's I know crazy. he was tough. Huh? Yeah, he uh 
very boisterous. He uh, very, very outspoken. One of the main people trying to disrupt the rules meeting. That's it. Yeah. That was it. I do remember that. Um, I remember him working out. Um, he was definitely skilled. He was definitely skilled, but he did. He definitely had that disruptive attitude. I mean, I honestly, it's been so long, and I, you know, I was trying to look at some things over the years, and and just looking at because I knew I was doing this interview, but. I mean, there were there were several matches that stood out, but for the most part, you know, Zane, Zane I'm sure, you know, he's watching this. I'm going to kill the G-Man because he doesn't remember much about me. <laughs> uh, but but I do I do remember he was probably the most vocal of everybody there. That's absolutely true. Okay, so the first fight takes place at Taylor Tooley versus uh, Gerard Gerdo. Oh, yeah. Um how, was that shocking to you? Did you, did you what did you walk no. away from that feeling? No, because I, I I saw that coming when I saw Thule work out. I just felt like having known a little bit about martial arts, the limited uh, amount that I participated, um, knowing that he wasn't super quick on his feet. Yeah, I mean, the guy, what do you weigh, like 350 pounds, 400 pounds, something like that. Um, but I also knew Gerard had really long legs and really long arms. And that if that guy got within anywhere within his space, he was either going to drill him with punches or kick him in the side of the head. As soon as, you know, cause Thule came in like this, like sumo wrestlers do. I mean, they come in getting expecting to have body contact and move around and then try and take the guy down. Gerard had none of that, man. I mean, he just laid a kick on the side of his face and his teeth went flying and that was it. Wow. Yeah, that was uh, an incredible. And I was right fight. there. I mean, there, there, were, there were four tables around or five tables around the octagon, maybe six. This is an octagon. Uh, maybe eight. Um, but anyway, you had the doctors, you had the timer. Um, you you didn't have scorekeepers, but you had you know people that were um, keeping track of the fighters and all that. Well, I was sitting right next to the entrance, the gate to the octagon, and actually Zane, the guy I told you about earlier, and Barry Fay were sitting at a table, and when Gordo hit Thule across the head. His teeth flew out, and there was blood all over that table. I mean, it was really graphic what that happened in that first fight. And I was like, wow, this is real. Like, this is as real as it gets. The kick and Joey, what, the follow-up strike by Gordeaux. Like, you got to remember, we're going back, 19, you know, November 11th, 1993. But if you look at the kick and then the follow-up strike, it's an incredibly violent exchange. It really well, is. One of, one of the things I thought to myself was Thule died. I, I honestly <laughs> thought this would be the worst thing to happen for the UFC. You know, all you want to do is get through this if you're trying to have more UFCs in the future. Um, is People love the action, but the worst possible thing that could happen <clears throat> is somebody gets killed in the octagon. Because then there'd be all these lawsuits and and they wouldn't allow them to do it in any other state. 
Uh, and I actually, after he kicked him and then hit him, I the way he was down, I thought he was dead. But luckily he wasn't. So thank God he wasn't. Yeah, it's uh, when the Gold's Gym sponsor, the only sponsor for the event, got yeah. up and left. They got up and yeah. left at that point. I mean, they got a lot more sponsors after that, but I yeah. think they were in the... I think they were the wrong sponsor for that. <laughs> yeah, they'd seen enough. Yeah. yeah. When did they allow you to see the octagon for the first time? Um, Friday. Friday, I went over to the arena. Um, so you, I yeah, I'll tell you this. For a ring announcer, the duties that you're telling me and the dots that you, you're, I'm connecting with what your activity was, you're doing more than 99% of all ring announcers, period. Well, you know, here's the thing. Here's what I've always, uh, this has always been my philosophy. It's better to be overprepared than underprepared. And, and because I never, I didn't know what this was. I didn't know what the layout was. I, you know, I've done, I could go into the core super fights after a year and just walk in the arena. Here, give me the card. Oh, this is who's fighting. Just give me their height and weight and what their discipline is <clears throat> okay i can announce that that's easy but being very unfamiliar like everybody else and not knowing what was going on i just kind of wanted to take the time to to make sure that i was overly prepared so i wouldn't look like a fool on national tv which i've done before um hence the billboard thing but the uh the way I looked at it was I wanted to just get in the octagon, see what it was like, you know, have the gate open, walk in there, look around. Never seen anything like that. Never. You know, all rings or whatever boxing rings, most martial arts things don't have, um, you know, rings, so to speak. But the uh I've been in a lot of boxing rings. You got to go through the ropes. This one, they opened the gate door. I walked in, you know, I saw the padding on the sides in the, all the, all the different dividers. And I saw the pads around the top and I saw the chain link fence and, um, and the, the, the mat was just like a boxing ring had that feel to it uh, a little softer, like a little more bounce. Um, you know, those, and then I looked around and I was like, I, I always thought, man, those people up, like the people way up aren't going to be able to really see if this thing's sold out. But the people that were close were right next to the ring. So the first impression I got was, wow, this is really cool. Excuse me, it's no, nothing I've ever seen before. Uh, it was kind of cool to go into the ring. I, I think I went in before all the fighters did because the fighters came that afternoon. So I was really the first one other than the semaphore guys, semaphore entertainment guys that set it up and, and the people that were making sure everything was on the up and up. I was probably the first person in there that were, that had anything to do with the octagon. Rich, it's currently located at the Genesis training center out in Denver. It's still there. Oh, it is. Yeah. I had no idea. Where, where's the Genesis training center. It's in the back of like a, uh, like a big warehouse. And Chris Camozzi works out there. Like they've got several. Oh man, I, I got to go out there. That that would be really cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you told last, me time that. I went, last time I was in Denver, I took a whole bunch of video. Like I was, you know, dorking out. You know, 
Um, wow, I, I was always wondering where uh, Thule's teeth were. <laughs> <laughs> so Pat Smith, one of them, one of them is probably still embedded in the padding on the upper level, on the upper part of that <laughs> octagon. It's it was so in Gordo's. It was in Gordo's foot for a little while. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> that, that's a great point, bro. Did you <laughs> remember funny. hearing about that? Like Gordo still carrying like like shards of his tooth inside his foot. No, I never heard that. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's why they wrapped it. Yeah. Oh well, I, I, they didn't take him out. They couldn't. They were. They were. It was like they were broken off and in there. And it would have been like a, an evasive procedure to where they would have had to cut open the foot even more. Wow. Well, let's hope uh, Thule didn't eat a bunch of spicy food right before he fought. Yeah, right? Could so, definitely damage his foot. Pat Smith tells you he's 250-0. You've seen him fight previously. You don't pick him as one of your top uh, three in regards to being in the finals. Why is that? Who's that? Pat Smith. Oh, Pat Smith, man. Um, the reason I didn't pick him to be in the finals, um, you know, li listen, I, I love the way he fought at the core super fights. Um, but he had a he had a wild side to him, like um, kind of just, you know, he could go off at any time, like breaking the rules. So. Uh, one of the core super fights, and I don't want to go too far over there, but one of the things I remember was he had a guy knocked out and still went after him. And there's certain things that you do when you're when you're a professional martial artist, and maybe he hated the guy, and maybe the guy said something about his girlfriend or something or whatever it happened to be. But he went after this guy probably more than he should have in one of those fights. So I knew that he was a wild card and that, you know, it maybe he would just be overly hyped or break a rule or something or get disqualified. That's it. That's the only reason, because like his his fighting skills were as good as anybody I'd ever seen martial arts wise. I mean, he was great on his feet. Um, he could he had really powerful punches. He could move. Um, he was able to get guys in, in positions that, you know, try and throw in an arm bar or whatever. I mean, he was, he was really talented, really talented. I just felt like when I saw Shamrock and I saw Gracie and their ground skills, like when you're a martial arts and, and you're a kickboxer, if you don't get that guy, you better be able to have some ground skills. Okay. Like Dan Severin. Way, way after that, like Severin, it didn't matter if he got kicked in the face. He had better ground skills than everybody else. So guys would try and take him down and choke him out. That's what he did. Same with Gracie. Same with Shamrock. Um, Gordo, not so much, and Patrick, Patrick Smith, not so much. But those guys, those guys that were great ground skills guys, great wrestling technique and great ground skills, great grapplers. I always felt like they were the best martial artists as far as being able to choke guys out. Right. With, without getting too much into Patrick Smith's background, but with how everything ended with him, you're a Colorado guy, he's a Colorado guy. Were you surprised? No, I, I felt bad. 
um, he just, he was a likable guy outside the octagon, outside the ring. He just, he was just a, he was, I mean, shit, I don't even know how old he was when he, well, how old was he when he first fought in the UFC? Do you remember? Was he 20 something? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, don't I, I say this because he had, man, I'll tell you, he had as much support from all the Denver fans more support than anybody I ever saw come out of Denver in mixed martial arts. Now there've been some guys since like cowboy and some other people, but um, he had as much support, like family support, financial support, fan support, sponsor support. He was like the guy. I always felt like he'd win one. You know, and I know he he went to the finals, right? Was that UFC two? Um, UFC two. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I knew he'd get there. I hope he. I was hoping he'd get over the top to represent Denver, but you know, I mean, things happen along the way in life. Like, not everybody survives. That's the whole thing. Yeah. It's like he was he was thirty when he debuted in the UFC. He was thirty. Yeah, peak physical peak. So I, you know, it's it's interesting because I started seeing him when he was in his mid twenties or, or early twenties, I think, because I was doing the super fights for at least five or six years, maybe seven years. They were going on, and he was always in there. He was always a participant, and we had some at Mammoth Gardens, which is where UFC two was, because uh, they wanted a smaller space, and at that time they could have filled up McNichols Arena in UFC two, but. Um, I saw him when he was in his like early twenties. So, um, yeah, I see. It seems like he. I thought he was twenty eight or twenty nine. But yeah, I saw him a lot early on. Okay. Um, the aftermath of UFC one. Um, I think we can all agree at this point it was like shocking for a lot of people that anyone could watch this type of barbaric behavior and. It was frowned upon in many social circles, like union type social circles. It was frowned upon. You're the ring announcer. What kind of blowback did you receive? Uh, you, well, being in the media, we did get a lot of calls on the radio show about it after. Um, there were quite a few people that bought the pay-per-view. I was, I was actually stunned at how many pay-per-views were sold. Because I, I thought they must have done a great job of <clears throat> obviously promoting it, especially on the East Coast. I think it was a lot bigger numbers on the East Coast than on the West Coast. Um, the blowback was how gruesome it was, um, how bloody it was. Uh, how could you hold a, you know, no holds bar, bare knuckle um, type of event and allow. Um, anybody from basically any discipline in, no weight classes, no time limits. You know, that those were the things that that kind of I remember people saying. But, man, being right there in the front row, I was like, man, my heart was racing. I thought this was like the greatest thing ever. I was hoping that, like, the, the, the matchups would go longer. You know, I hated when a guy got knocked out in 10 seconds. I was like, okay, yeah, that was great. But, you know, let's see some, you know, knockdown, drag out, five-minute rounds type things. And 
you know, which they eventually ended up having to go to with weight classes and time limits and, and things like that. I knew they would refine it, but man, it gave, for the first like four or five, it was crazy, man, with, you know, just random matchups of all different disciplines and, and all different weights and some with no experience like bar fighters and some guys with 10 years experience in martial arts and black belts and disciplines, different disciplines, multiple disciplines. But the blowback was kind of like, oh, they'll never have that again. You know? Did it affect you professionally? Yeah, we had women calling our show like, oh, God, gee, man, how could you ever do that? I'm like, well, it was a great paycheck, first of all. And they put me up in a nice (laughs) hotel room. (laughs) And uh, that's what I'm all about is, you know, room service and things like that. But, uh, you know, (laughs) I mean, for me, it was great. Did your bosses... Did your bosses come down on you at all? No, 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 no. They knew ahead of time. They, they, they actually wanted. They were hoping they'd do more because when they, they, when they introduced me on the thing, they would say, you know, G Man's a radio sportscaster in Denver. He works for the Fox. Anything publicity wise, they love. My it. company was behind me a hundred percent. I mean, that's how. That's how you make a difference in a real competitive business is standing out and, and having, you know, 300, 400,000 eyeballs on you, that kind of thing. That's amazing. Yeah. There's a lot of people that issues. And I'm going to tell you another little side note about UFC one. I just watched it again the other day. Eric Paulson is cage side. Who was Eric Paulson, uh famous Ooh. martial artist. Um, yeah. Coach. One of my MMA heroes. Yeah. He was, he was, Cage side, UFC one. Man, that's you know what I, I honestly I don't remember him being there. I know who he is, and had I seen him, I would have definitely gone up and said hi. Um, I remember like uh, they had um, let's see, who was it? It was uh, was was Superfoot Wallace, one of the announcers. Yeah, Bill and Kathy Long. Yeah, Bill Brian Kilmeade was the interviewer. And then there was and a Brown. and a female. There was also a woman that was Kathy Long. Kathy I Long. I remember her. Yeah, she she was a famous martial artist, right? Yes. Right. Oh yeah. And Jim Brown. I mean, Jim Brown. Like I I I never understood why they brought in Jim Brown, other than yeah. I I knew from a marketing standpoint, like if you say Jim Brown's on the broadcast, people are going to tune in and see what it is. Um, you know, I got I got that part of it. I actually stayed friends with Jim Brown until he passed away. He was really good to me. Yeah, I enjoyed him. Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, he was when I went to Cleveland, here was that Cleveland, Denver, um, the drive game. Uh was it ninety-six? Anyway, Jim Brown was there. And I was on the field because I was working for the Broncos radio station at the time or our company owned the rights to the Broncos games. And he saw me and he came over and all the guys I was with were like, dude, how do you know Jim Brown? I'm like, ultimate fighting man. That's the best. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. UFC two. How, uh, when did they start contacting you in regards to announcing for UFC two and what were your expectations of it? Well, they, I mean, they contacted me, um, I don't know, maybe a month before. And just said, hey, I, you know, honestly, 
I'm sure there's better ring announcers out there. I mean, I ended up getting replaced by Bruce Buffer down the line. Uh, but well, wait, 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 wait. We're not referring to Bruce Buffer as being better than you. You're just saying that he replaced you, correct? <laughs> okay. You know, I, I don't, I don't have an issue with Bruce. I mean, he's, I, he's. I don't have an issue either. I'm just trying to, you know, in terms of oh, rankings. Well, I, 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 I know where he is. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. That's very nice of the Um, so I had a great time, but they contacted me like a month before, and I think part of the reason was UFC two was in Denver. They didn't have to fly me out. They really didn't have to put me up other than one night in a hotel. Um, and uh, and Michael called me and said, "Hey, man, you did a great job. The first one, everybody liked you. You know, let's do the second one." So I said, yeah, I'll do it. That, in my opinion, that's the most brutal MMA event on U.S. soil ever. So were there 16 guys in that? There was. Yes. It's the only 16-man tournament in UFC history. I know. And I remember, yeah, that's one of the things. Um, you guys are taking me back. I, like I said, I didn't do – I wanted to kind of be sp- spontaneous here with you so you can go over some of the matches with me but um one of the things there were two things i remember one was it was at a completely smaller venue it was uh, i'm gonna get rid of this text that i have on here um it was at a place called um the uh mammoth event center now mammoth mammoth was the place where the core super fights took place so I was really familiar with Mammoth Event Center. I didn't have to go scout it out. I knew what the octagon looked like. Um, I knew where the dressing rooms were and all that. Uh, the other thing is Mammoth is really small, like 2,500 people maybe. It's it's now the Fillmore Auditorium here in Denver. So okay. they came in and renovated the whole Mammoth Gardens after – the company that owned uh, owns a bunch of Fillmore's. There's one in San Francisco. They're all over their concert venue. But they came in and put a couple million dollars in there and made it a concert venue. But the one thing that it had was when I did the core super fights, man, they only had metal stands. Like, you know, you know, the bleachers you see at high school football games. That That's what the stands were in the Mammoth Event Center. And, and they took all those out and brought in chairs around the octagon and then and then they put some risers in but i'm telling you what man the ventilation in there sucked it smelled it was it was a dog shit arena <laughs> i mean it was dog shit i'm telling you and they, they didn't have concerts there or anything. all they had there was like weddings and mixed martial arts shit and it was it was the worst venue, but it was great for the UFC because it was intimate. I mean, it looked like people were hanging over the octagon. It looked like the place had 10,000 people in there, but they didn't. You know, it had this uh, stairway about 20 feet off the corner of the octagon. You walk down the aisle, and then there's a stairwell that goes down, and that's where all the dressing rooms were. And you talk about like paint peeling off the walls and and no showers and bad bathrooms. It was a crappy venue before they renovated. So, but it was perfect for the UFC because it looked like, oh my God, look at this place. It's there 20,000 people there. That's wild. Yeah, they, they see uh, in Art Davies' book, 
Um, is this legal? Fantastic read. Um, he claimed that they ran out of amb- like the, the city ran out of ambulances because they were using right. so many. They ran out of what? Ambulances. Oh yeah, the, I remember. That's the other thing I remember. When I came, I came in the back way. I got to park behind the venue. And if, if you if you're ever in Denver and you go over to the Fillmore, it's right on Colfax which is one of the busiest drags in Denver. And that's where the Capitol is. It's literally three or four blocks from the state Capitol. But, excuse me, it's so precious on the real estate, there's no parking. There's no parking lots. The only parking is about 10 spots behind the uh, Mammoth Gardens, which is now the Fillmore, and an alley. And when I walked in the back door, to go do my thing that night, I remember seeing five or six ambulances parked in the alley. <laughs> now, my my first take on that is I thought because there's somebody's going to get shot or somebody's going to beat the shit out of somebody uh, in the audience, not the fighters. I mean, this is a tough. It's a tough part of town. I mean, East Colfax and Denver is a rougher part. Capitol Hill and Denver is. A rough neighborhood, and back then, like ninety, was it ninety four? It was a really rough neighborhood. So I thought they had ambulances and extra security and police, like they were anticipating fights breaking out in the stands and people, you know, getting in knife fights out on the street. That's what I thought the ambulances were there for. Little did I know it was just going to be a bloodbath. Yeah, yeah, brutal, brutal event, man. One of my favorites. One, of, I mean, it's it's shocking that the uh, city didn't come down on them after that. And it, well, they did. They, they, wouldn't, they, they didn't let another UFC happen until, what was it, uh, uh, 2000, what was it, 2017 here? I, I want to say that was the only one. 2017 was the uh, 25th anniversary or 2018, 25th anniversary of the UFC. That's when Dana White brought it back and they had it at uh, uh, Pepsi Center, which is now the Ball Arena. That's the only, that's that's how much gap time there was between the, the events, the last one in Denver. I want to say if my history serves me correct. The Pat Smith fight against Scott Morris, that looked about as close to a ring death as you'll see in an yes. early UFC. That was the Patrick Smith that I knew. That was the guy who could literally go off and take somebody out. You know, I mean, you, you heard about some boxing matches where a guy died, you know, like Dooku Kim, that kind of thing. But when you got a guy who's that, I'm not going to say crazy, but just borderline like, <laughs> wanted to take somebody out and really make a point. <clears throat> that was Patrick Smith to me. He was this close from from snapping a gasket when he got in the ring. But that was his mentality. I mean, that he was in survival mode as soon as he walked in through the gate. Um, and, and every fight I ever saw with him, that's how he was. And then as soon as he left the 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 arena or whatever, you know, you could walk up to him and say hi, and he was. The nicest guy. That that fight there was like vintage Patrick Smith wanting to take you out and make sure you never fought again. 
because that's what that's the mentality he had when he went in the ring. That's who he was, man. He was yeah. wild. He, he definitely enjoyed his work. Oh, he, he he enjoyed violence, no doubt about that. Yes, yeah. He, I mean, honestly, that's that's the thing is, I, I still try and figure out guys that are that laid back in life that can immediately turn it on like that and become, it's not barbaric because you're a professional, but to be that gifted and that skilled and still be able to, to turn a, turn a light switch on and be able to take somebody out like that. That's why I never got in the ring boys. I mean, yeah. I, I, that would scare the shit out of me. If I got in there with a professional uh, mixed martial artist, no way. Pat Smith, the only person in UFC history to win three fights in one event and not be crowned champion. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, well, I mean, I just remember that was the other thing. Remember, I, I went to the hotel, same hotel. Now they have 16 guys. And I just remember going, God, I just hope I can keep all these guys straight in my mind. You know, I have my cards and I met them. I didn't watch as much of the uh, sparring as I did UFC one. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to guys, you know, where have you fought? What's your record? They all lied. Like no, nobody knew what anybody's record was, you know, I'm 30 and oh, I'm like, are you? Yeah. Right. Like where <laughs> 30, and oh, like, are we talking street fights, bar fights, you know, fights in your family, beating up your brother. Is that the 30, and know? Um, but the funny thing about it is, I didn't spend like a lot of time um, watching guys spar because I had a feeling about like just there were certain guys you look at them and you go, man, that guy's going to do really well. And in that time, Patrick Smith was one of the guys. Hmm. So Patrick Smith obviously makes it to the finals, does not win. UFC runs out of ambulances. They Barely make it through by the skin of their teeth. Art Davey in his book just talks about just like at the end of it, he almost hit a an emotional breakdown because it's just how thin staffed they were, the amount of violence that they had experienced in it. Um, UC two was different, like it was different. Yeah. Well, first of all, Art Davey is a great guy. He treated me really nice, and Bob Moritz did, and you know the whole that whole. Uh, of people that put that on um, was was amazing to me. I know you're going to talk about that at some point, but um, Art Davey was man, that guy was he was a genius. I mean, he was a master marketer. Um, he knew how to put fights together um, as far as like matchups and things like that would that would bring the most excitement. But I, re I remember at the end of that, man, I, and I had a tux on my tux. I mean, I was sweating like I was in a fight. I mean, I I literally was drenched from head to toe in sweat. I had to keep combing my hair back and wiping my face down with a towel while I was sitting there ringside. Um, there was no air conditioning. Um, it was just hot in there. Um, you know, 2,000 people in a space that probably should have had 500, really, honestly, when they have concerts now at the Fillmore, you know, 800 people is a, a pretty much a sold out show. You had 2000 people in an, in an area that should have, you know, the fire marshal should have shut it down. But um, I just remember just being drenched and going home and I was gassed and saying, 
man, now that I don't think there's, I don't think there's going to be a UFC three after that. I really said that to myself. I'm like, Hey, I had my career here. That was fun. Great. Thank you very much. Nice paycheck. I'm good. That's what I thought at the end of that. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, after UFC two, Harold Howard enters into the picture, more character type people. UFC three was UFC three was fantastic in terms of comic book type characters. Three and four are the best. Dude, I, you know what's so funny? I I honestly, you'd have to remind me of some of the things that happened in two and three and four because after two, you know, all I remember is I went to. Puerto Rico, and I went to Savannah, Georgia, and I went to Detroit. My family was there. Um, I, you know, I was like traveling around, and you know, for me, it was almost mind numbing. I, I remember doing my research and going to the event and introducing the guys and watching from ringside. But I, honestly, man, I, I tell you, it's, it's been so long. Okay, here, here, here. Let me. Let me hit you with some. We've got an investigation going. You're a cooperative witness. We need your we need your 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 eyes on something. Okay. Hoist Gracie Harold Howard. They announce Hoist or Harold Howard into the ring. They announce Hoist. You ring announce both parties. Before right. the bell is rang, a towel comes over the side, and Hoist doesn't continue. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that. What because were your thoughts? Because he, um, that was shocking to me because that guy was the toughest guy I'd ever seen in the ring. Now, there were more physical guys. There were guys who were better, what I say, um, strikers, guys that were better um, karate Muay Thai type fighters, but Gracie, as slight as he was, I mean, he was like a cobra snake. He was like a mongoose. He could contort his body in all different ways and directions so he could finally get a choke out. But when they said he was injured, I I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And all I said to myself was, I thought of this guy. I thought this guy was the toughest person I'd ever seen in any sport. You can name your sport: football. You can hockey. Do whatever you know. Australian rules: football, soccer, whatever. Football. I mean, Gracie was as tough as because he took a beating. He took a beating in a lot of those fights leading up to the championships of one and two. I mean, he was physically drained takes a lot of energy to do what he does. But when they told me he was injured, I was like, no way. Like, what does he have? Like, is his, are they going to amputate his arm or something? Because I figured it didn't matter what the injury was. He was at least going to get in the ring and, and, and compete. Okay. So let's talk backstage. That contest, that, that bout is ruled a no contest. So in essence, Harold Howard gets a bye to the finals because he does not have a second fight. Right. Gracie goes out there, takes a spot, bows out. 
they're not right. counting that they're not counting that as a loss on his record and there's no commission. So one has to assume there maybe have been some a bit of politicking happening backstage. Do you well, remember any that, of that? I honestly when when I was out there next to the octagon or in the octagon, I never went backstage. I never went into the dressing rooms after I was out there. Because I was constantly doing something. I was either you know, mentioning promotions and things like that from the side of the stage, you know, like you can get memorabilia over here. You can do this. I wasn't just jumping in the ring and introducing fighters. I was still an announcer um, doing that kind of thing. Um, I was anticipating which fights were coming up. I was, you know, checking my notes and things like that. I never saw anything backstage. The only thing I ever saw backstage was after UFC one and two, I saw, and Horian and grandfather together celebrating, taking pictures and things like that. That's basically how I saw. And then I went home. Okay. <laughs> I didn't stick okay. around for the parties or anything. That's fair. That's fair. Um, do you remember 600 pounds? Well, it looks to be 600 pounds. Emmanuel Yarborough. Oh, yeah. Hackney. All right. When oh, that, yeah. gate, that gate door pops open, when Yarborough rushes him against the fence? Yes. Bring us through it. Well, first of all, I remember seeing Yarborough in person before that. <laughs> and I thought, holy fuck, this is the biggest human being I've ever seen in my life. Like, this guy cast a shadow of shadows. That's how big this guy was. I mean, I when I first walked into his training center, I went like this. They opened the door. I went, it was one of those, you know, like you're looking at the Jolly Green Giant. So I was like, I'm wondering what kind of skills this guy has. He's so big. I mean, all he has to do is knock somebody over and lay on him. They're going to suffocate. That was my first thing I thought. Um, but, yeah, when he came in, when he came in, it was on. I mean, that guy, for a big guy, he I thought – Man, why, why aren't NFL teams recruiting this guy? This guy might be the greatest left tackle in the history of the NFL. If somebody could get sign him to a contract, he was a big man. And, and he was actually relatively fast for a big man. Um, and I saw the look in Hackney's eyes, man. Oh, yeah, that was fear. That was as big a fear as, as anyone could ever imagine. Their worst fear coming to life was Yarborough coming at you and trying to kill you. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, six Yarbr foot, six foot eight, six hundred and sixteen pounds. That's okay. ridiculous. Yes, yeah. So I, you know, I didn't know what to make of. There were certain fights that, you know, I was like, okay, I think that guy's going to win. Yeah, that guy's got more skill. But that was a fight that completely, I was like, man. If Hackney gets on the ground and that guy lays on him, he, there's no way he's going to be able to get out from under him. That was my first thing. And then I thought, you know, if Hackney can get a few shots into the legs or, you know, somehow get a kick up by his face or a few punches, maybe he's got a shot at knocking the guy out. But the guy was so tall. He was so tall. And I don't know how tall Hackney was. How tall was Hackney? 5'11". Yeah, I remember him being about six foot. I thought maybe six one. I mean, it's that he wasn't slight. Like I'm five eight, five nine, 
So he was taller than me, but that Yarbrough was like, holy shit, man. How are you going to take this guy out? You're not going to choke him. You're not going to squeeze him around the chest. His chest is too big. You got to get try and get him on the ground or jump up and get around his neck and have him throw you around like you're riding a, a wild stallion. I just, I didn't know what to think. That was, that was one of the fights I thought, I don't, I, I have no idea who's going to win this. So, I mean, just so everybody understands, Manuel Yarbrough is an athlete. He, uh, Junior college, all-American all wrestler, and I think Tom Erickson may have been one of his seasons, maybe it been his only loss. So, I really? mean, well, I, knew was, on- I knew, yeah, I knew he was a wrestler. <clears throat> I just didn't know, I didn't know what kind of martial arts skills he had. I thought, okay, well, you know, there's some, some guys with wrestling backgrounds, you know, I keep re- referencing Severin, um, that are great on the ground and i knew he was a wrestler but i kept thinking man you know this guy could get kicked in the legs he could get whacked in the knee and just fall down um there were a lot of different things a lot of different ways guys can take guys out uh from a martial arts standpoint and i didn't know how that was gonna how that was gonna fly yeah hoping to get uh keith hackney on here sometime soon i've been chasing him forever as well um keith hackney keith hackney was uh a great athlete. He yeah. was an amazing MMA guy and a nice guy too. I mean, he always talked to me. He was, you know, as good as they came, uh, but above way, way above level talent um, as far as a martial artist. I mean, that guy had some skill. Yeah. And he for was sure. tough. He was tough. When that, sure. when that octagon gate busted open, was it not properly shut or did it, break do you remember i don't you know what's funny is there was uh well at first they wanted me to shut the gate like every time and i was like no 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 just get a get a girl or get a, a gate person you know because you know i, I want to make sure i'm sitting back down so i see what's going on i think he broke it i don't think i think it was locked i think the weight of that guy was what busted that out. Yeah. And then they had to tie it. They, they were tying it off after that. Oh, they did tie it. Yes. Yeah. The latch was completely broken. That's the one thing I remember. It, it was, it was, you know, it's like your gate at home on your backyard. Like if that little, that little yeah. C-clip oh. doesn't latch, you're not going to be able to shut it. So then the, the guy who was in charge of the gate, I'm pretty sure had like a strap he was just putting through to make sure like a leather strap or something to make sure it was tough. I honestly think it was somebody's belt. Like somebody took their belt off and gave it to the guy and said, uh, here, use this <laughs> and hopefully it'll last the rest of the night. Holy shit. <laughs> That's crazy, huh? That yep. gate busting open was the biggest gift in the world to Keith Hackney because that fight oh, no. would have gone very different. Oh, absolutely. That's uh, I, and I'm glad you brought that up. Because that guy hit him so hard, it could have killed him. It could have crushed him. He certainly would have still had, you know, like chain link fence marks in his back. Because <laughs> he hit that thing hard. I, I do yeah. remember that. That bring, that takes me back. Yeah, that crossbar on the king of the cage door was put there yes. specifically because of that issue. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Wow. All right, UFC 5, ring announcer Ron Jeremy. What 
how do you not do UFC five? Who is this radio? Maybe a radio guy, Ron Jeremy. Do you know? Uh, you know, I don't remember that. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm losing a lot of brain cells. I don't remember that. Yeah. You didn't do UFC five. It was a different person named Ron Jeremy, Ron Jeremy, but it wasn't like the Ron. Jeremy. Oh, no, no, yeah. no. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I remember what happened now. So, um, let's see. Okay. So I was broadcasting, uh, I had college football that I was doing. Actually, I was filling in for a guy who was doing college football. I'm pretty sure it was either college football or college basketball. One of the guys got sick and the radio station said, Hey, we need you to work this game. And I was like, I was, I'm supposed to do the UFC. And they said, no, we need you at the game. So, you know, they were, they were paying my paycheck at that time. So I, uh, I remember that now. Yeah. I, I remember I missed one of them. Up until like eleven, because I yeah. did I did more after that, right? Yeah, you did the ultimate ultimate uh, in nineteen ninety five. I I think that's actually in Denver. Um, hundred fifty thousand dollar grand prize dance seven versus Oleg Tektarov. No, I, are you sure that was in Denver, Joey? I'm looking it up right now. Because I don't remember any of the other ones being in Denver. Okay. Ultimate, ultimate. 1995. Yeah, I'm on it. I'm on it. That was Mammoth Garden in Denver. Yeah. Oh, so we went back there. I think that was it for Denver. Yeah. Wow. So I was wrong about that. I, man. No, no, no. I, I think you're correct. You just misplaced it. I think it was right at the ultimate, ultimate. Okay. No, because I didn't I didn't think they came back until UFC, well, I don't know what number it was, but it was 25 years later. It was like UFC 200 or something yeah. like that. But uh yeah, I mean, honestly, they they could have had it at the Mammoth Gardens. I'm you know, honestly, a lot of this stuff is uh, I remember certain things, but I you know, I can't remember everything. <laughs> no, no, of course, of, of course. All right, here, here, what, couple, let me show you. I got look at this. Here's my UFC one all access. Very cool. Yeah, where's my camera? Oh, there it is. Right there. there it is. Wow. I've had people offer to buy this from me because I put I'm it online when it was the 25th anniversary. And then this is two. Oh, no way. Yeah, these are my press passes. And then this is three all access. Nice. Holy and then uh, and I did save and I don't I didn't save any other ones, but this was the uh I think this last one I did was UFC nine. So I kept all the uh <clears throat> I kept most of my I can't find a bunch of I moved and stuff like that, but I had I had a I had I added literally every press pass. I still had a I had a great picture with me and Jim Brown that he signed. Um Later, when he was out in Denver doing a promotional thing, I, I showed up for that, and he signed my picture. He's like two G man, great ring announcer. Um, so I, you know, I've met a lot of cool people through the through the UFCs. Well, here let, let's tie up with let's here. First and foremost, did you know that there was? Did you ever sense that there were issues between 
by Myrowitz and Art Davey? No, I, I didn't spend enough time around those guys. Okay. Um, I, I think I could see possibly as it got bigger and more popular that now I don't know what kind of stake Art Davey had in the whole thing. Um, I'm going to read his book. I, I, I want to read his book. I just didn't read his book. I don't know if he ever mentioned like when that group from Semaphore sold it originally the first time. Well, let's say the only it, time. It, UFC 5 was when right. uh, that was it. Yes. I, I think I think what happened was Myrowitz My, kind of struck me as a guy, you know, I knew who he was because uh, he was in the radio business. He was the guy that uh, started the King Biscuit Flower Hour. He was in syndicated radio before syndicated radio was huge. So now you've got all these, you know, radio personalities that are syndicated. But at the time, the King Biscuit Flower Hour was um, a unique concept because it was syndicated on a bunch of classic rock stations around the country. Our station carried that. His company created that. He created that. And so I kind of thought that at some point he seemed like a little more less glitz and less barbaric. And I'm not saying Art Davey was barbaric, but Art Davey recognized the the draw that was like you want to see the car wreck, you want to see the. <laughs> He's going to give it to you. He's going right. to give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> he was the marketing guy that delivered the barbaricness, so to speak, if that's a word. Uh, Bob Bob Myers was the guy who was like clean cut. Great suits, clean shaven beard, didn't say a whole lot, quiet. But you you could tell there was it was like a quiet uh assassin. Of, yeah, he was a powerful guy without being loud. And Absolutely. so I, I, yeah. I kind of thought these two guys were different, just different personalities. Art was out there, vocal promotion, marketing. Here's what we gotta do. This is the lights, this is how we gotta introduce these guys. We want their pictures up here. We want them out there. And Bob was just sitting backstage, probably counting his money and said, you know what? I'm going to let these guys take it wherever they want to. So that doesn't surprise me. Okay. Okay. Here, let's end with UFC 8 Puerto Rico. Uh, the super fight was Ken Shamrock versus uh, Kimo. However, yeah. in the crowd, Tank Abbott and oh. Alan Goez get into a fight. Do you remember yes. that? You were right oh, there. 100%. First of all, Puerto Rico was amazing. They put us up at the Sands. The Sands Hotel in Puerto Rico at the time had, oh my God, be most beautiful hotel right on the beach. Great restaurants, cigar lounge, Cuban cigars. I mean, that was like my. That was my ultimate trip with UFC, man. Had a nice room, perfect setup. I mean, the arena was, again, it was like, it was bigger. It was huge. But again, no air conditioning. Just 
people drenched in sweat. I mean, the crowd was, you know, they didn't have enough. They ran out of beer. And, um, but I remember sitting in the ring and I remember who Tank, I knew Tank Abbott because I'd met him and he was in the audience yelling at everybody. I'll kick every one of your asses. I'm the best MMA guy here. I don't care if I'm a bar fighter. I'll take on every one of you fuckers. And he was, I mean, he came down from the stage. His girlfriend with him. She's like right next to him. She's screaming shit at people. And he comes like, we're getting ready to do the fight. And here he comes right down out of the audience. He got about this close to the, to the octagon and, and security grabbed him. And that was like a huge mistake. It, it, it took about eight security guys to get that guy out of the arena. So I re, I remember that. I remember, you know, how loud he was. I mean, he was a bad boy. He just wanted to be in the UFC. He was like, you guys are ducking me. Nobody wants to fight me. I'm the baddest motherfucker in the United States. That's That was what I remember him saying, that kind of stuff. He punched uh, Alan Goas, too. Oh, oh yeah. He, he would he would have punched everybody in the ring if he could have got in. You know, that that's that's where you would have seen me first time climb the chain link fence and jump out of the ring if Tank Abbott had come in to fight people. <laughs> that guy was seriously deranged. <laughs> do, do you he remember Andy? Wait, one more question, Joey, and I'll let you have it. I apologize. Uh, do you remember Andy Anderson? Oh, man. No. Real short guy. Usually helped with with the ring card girls. He's doing. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember. I, I, yeah, I remember Andy. Ton yep. of money. Ton of money at the time. I remember him. I didn't know his last name was Anderson. I just remember Andy with the ring girls. Anything stand out with him? Uh, I was probably too busy watching the ring girls. But um, <laughs> no, you know, honestly, I. Why did he have a? Is there a story behind him? You can tell me. He's in federal. He's in federal prison. He's doing like oh. thirty-five years, like tax evasion stuff, like that. Yeah, um, that doesn't surprise me. You know, he's probably throwing all his money at the ladies. Didn't yeah. save any for himself. Joey, you had a question? Oh no, we were talking about Hank. I was just going to bring up his drinking problem. That how that uh, definitely played into his boisterous personality. That's all. Well, you know, he, the where I met him, it wasn't in Puerto Rico. He was at one of the other UFCs. Um, I can't remember which one. He fought in UFC what, 6. Huh? Yeah. He, he fought in UFC 6. That was his debut. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, I remember him. I remember, sorry, I take that back. I remember him fighting, but I also remember meeting him. And I remember going to a party. Uh, a post fight party. And I do remember that he liked to do a lot of shots. That's all I'll say, because I don't want him tracking me down here in Denver and, and killing me. <laughs> he's uh he's currently on his second liver right now. Oh, okay. So I, uh, yeah, no, no joke. So hopefully he's slowed things down a bit. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> Hell of a fighter. I, I wow, can tell you that. He was as tough as they come. You know, when they started letting everybody in and bar brawlers and street fighters and, you know, it didn't matter if you had a mixed martial arts uh, background or, or any kind of martial arts. I just remember going, man, there's some fucking whacked people in this thing now. Wow. 
Wow. Um, before we go, and, and Rich, I hate to do this to you. Man, I I really, I need to use a welcome. You're listening to the Lights Out MMA History Podcast. Podcast. I, I need to use that as a bumper. I got it. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let me. All right. Here we go. Hey, it's the G-Man. I'm the original ring announcer from the first 10 UFCs, and you are listening to the Lights Out MMA History Podcast. I'm so glad you tuned in because Mike and Joey and Chris are the best podcasters on the planet, and they know their MMA shit. So if you don't listen, I'm going to track you down, and Joey's going to kick your fucking ass. I love it. Hey, Rich, all right, we're going to be, next time we're PKFC's down at back in Colorado, we would love to have you as a guest ringside, man. I'll let you guys take me out to dinner. That'd be fun. That'd be fantastic. Excellent. Absolutely. Man, Rich Goins, everybody, dude, absolute legend. Another legend in the books. He did a great job. He, he, he was great to talk to. Well, here, I actually really enjoyed him as a, as a ring announcer. Um. Man, I, I I hate to say it, man. Some of those old old guys, I I really prefer them as to kind of what's taking place today. Now, is it antiquated? Is it as showy? Okay, you know, I get it. But no, I'm I'm a G Man fan. I'm a part of the uh, the G Man cult, dude, for sure. I am too. I mean, just look, the UFC didn't keep everybody on after the first show. Kathy Long, Big uh, Superfoot Wallace, they were gone after the first one. They kept G-Man on and they did it for a reason. He was solid. And, and, and dude, let's let's like Big John McCarthy made his his UFC 2 debut um or his debut at UFC 2 and I mean, stuck there forever. And, and you know, like we always kind of, you know, Joey, when I make mistakes here, we leave it in. And, you know, sometimes there's a little, you know, kind of back and forth and it's, hey, it is what it is. You got to own it. I know when it's UFC October, we've kind of busted Big John McCarthy's balls a little bit. But he, here's the thing about Big John McCarthy. He set the rules. He created a path for every all the other people that are overseeing it. But also, there was no other referees. So when you go to an event with 12 or 15 fights, oftentimes there's three or four referees so they can slow down, decompress, you know, kind of understand what's going on, catch the rhythm. Big John never had that. So Big John is was always in there from the first fight to the last fight. And he was probably 99% good at, at like what was happening in front of him. And like, I, I also don't think it's fair, like on my end personally to kind of like bust his balls. Although I do like a good ribbing and accept it when it comes my way as well. Now, when we have talked about some bad calls that big McCarthy, big John McCarthy's made, it's often in the main event. So that's to your point. That's like his 12th fight of the night, dude. It's too much. Yeah. To not catch that Pete Williams kicked with a shoe on, you know, okay. I could forgive uh, yeah. today. You would never expect a referee to do a dozen fights in a row. That's unheard of now. No, no. And, and you got to remember, like, when's he sitting down? I mean, it's the entire four hours he's on his feet concentrating. Like, that's that's barbaric. Like, whatever it is they paid him probably wasn't enough because he worked harder than anybody else in that building. So yeah. I, I just kind of wanted to clarify that in regards to 
Like we, we've had a couple comments on YouTube in regards to Big John, Big John. Hey, dude, if Big John was on here, I'd have the utmost respect from regards to the line of questioning. Although, you know, some of those kind of questionable things absolutely would come up. Why wouldn't they? But it would be done respect. But it would be done respectfully. Just to kind of, you know, put a little balance on that teeter totter. I, I will say the people that I respect the most in MMA have a lot of respect for John McCarthy. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, he is yeah. he is one of those sacred cows. Yes, yes. So, you know, but in regards to teasing and stuff like that, I mean, people do it on our iTunes reviews. They give us five stars, but they do it on our iTunes reviews. So, you know, I accept it. I, I just maybe hope others would as well. Not that anything was said. So that, that's where I'm at with Big John McCarthy. Now, we need help with timestamps. If you're listening to this, we got Tyson Green. He's an absolute savage, but we need a little, we need some other, we need some other eyes in order to kind of free him up and, and help out. So if you like this podcast, you want to be involved and, you know, Joey, if like you're like Joey and myself and you can like withstand your wife, like yelling at you in regards to this, like ours does, you know, with us, you know, send us a message. Now, now not everybody knows what timestamps are. I mean, I didn't the first time I heard you mention it. It's basically just listening to the podcast and then writing down the times that certain topics come up. So that way, when we're looking through all of our content, we can, we can get to certain questions easier. That's all. Right. And we put it in YouTube. So it makes it out in chapters. So it's chapters for YouTube. But, you know, Joey, how many times do we have a guest where we're like, oh, man, let's try to pull this together. We put their name in in our little notes and boom, 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 boom. Everything comes up. And then like whatever interviews we did in the past, even if it's just like a minute comment, we go to it. We hear it from the source, like a large portion of our questions come from interviews that have already taken place that that we've done and timestamps and chapters are the reason for that yeah yeah it makes our job a lot easier yeah for sure joey what do we got what do we got planned what what do you got what do you think and anthony mad dog messinas is coming up ufc4 veteran fought all over the world i think 46 fights in his professional career that's going to be a good one and uh the black dragon ron van cleef Ron Van Cleef. All right. So we're going to knock those two out this week. First um, ever November. UFC commissioner, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Five, five through eight, maybe. Five through eight, he was the UFC commissioner, I believe. Something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and he was also at the show in the Ukraine, wasn't he? Wasn't he the, the uh, play-by-play? Was he at that IFC event? Charlie Anzalone said that one of the events he was at, uh, Von Cleef was the announcer. He was the ring announcer and he had to borrow the tie from Van Cleef. So I don't know. I thought that was in the Ukraine. Maybe that was, maybe that was Valley Tudo Japan. I'll have to go back and look. Uh, I'll tell you what, if that's the case, we're about to open up a whole new chapter on what took place there. Like Art Davey, which is Monday's drop. kind of says who threw him under the bus uh charlie anzalone says what happened there were some shady things happening there and yeah i'll get some clarification from charlie i'll text him and make sure that i got that event right okay cool uh we start on november off with rafael uh natal el sapo um real good emotional interview in fact we've got like ivan menjavar recorded um fabiano iha 
That was a good one. Yeah, I think we got four. Tony Frickland. Those are already recorded, ready to go for November. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Joey. Always a pleasure. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.